0: On the survey, one in three students report food insecurity. Hi, thanks Betsy. Thanks for this opportunity to chat with you today. My name is Professor Megan Sheehan. I am a cultural and linguistic anthropologist. I'm, I work within a kind of an applied framework and The research I do and write most on is about migration in Latin America, migration, urbanization, and how people are engaging in urban spaces. I just love doing research and kind of thinking through problems and how people are addressing problems in a way that recognizes what's the everyday lived reality of people, right? So how do we walk into McGlin's? How are we making choices? Or when do we opt for different ways of doing things? I'm really fascinated in that, like how are we using and understanding um, our engagements with with resources?
1: The name of the podcast is People, Planet and Profit, uh, referring to the three pillars of sustainability. That is being sustainable ethically, that is being good for people, being sustainable economically, which is good for profits, and being sustainable for the planet, which is environmental. So I think sociology, <laughs> a lot of the times it falls into obviously the social category, yeah. but a lot of times it also falls into the environmental category at the same time. So many of the things that hurt our environment hurt people.
0: Yeah. yeah, and there's some really there's really fascinating work. I, I find it our engagements and the unintended consequences. There's some really fascinating work that I have taught on in the environmental anthropology class about the ways in which it's this kind of push to multi-species ethnography, all those unintended consequences of our engagements with the environment that aren't necessarily people, but are about kind of what, what happens What are the levers that we set forth Uh, what are those kind of unintended implications that
1: are many and kind of playing out at the same time absolutely and that's what climate justice is about It's what environmental justice is about it's about working in that equality into everything that you do Mm
0: -hmm.
1: yeah and it's it's
0: great to see i i know in many of my classes and having had contact with a number of the students working on climate issues It's really fascinating to see the different connections that people are making um, between everything from, you know, like the single use items, plastics, um, the kind of recyclable, the issue of recyclable and e-waste, the kind of um, impact on different communities, whether people have gotten to go to COP and then um, interview and talk with people from vastly different communities across the world and thinking through, okay, how are the disparities and in, in how we see changes playing out in Colombia versus Pacific Islands versus you know Indigenous indigenous places in the US?
1: But then your work, I know, took you back to our very own campus. So would you like to tell us about what you did on our campus?
0: Yeah, so I will start with saying. I am helping. I'm not running. I'm helping a project on food insecurity on campus. I've always been interested in the anthropology of food, the meaning of food as people migrate, and then also like what they have access to. But then food also is this great topic because you can get into resource and how you acquire resource. And then we also see incredible disparities in who has access to different kind of different options within food. In terms of on campus, I teach a qualitative methods class, which is being offered this semester in case any of these listeners want to uh, practice and build uh, methodological skills. And the last time I taught that class, I was looking for projects that students could work on that would would be useful projects that are applied and helpful um, and provide insightful information for our institutions, our schools, and yet, be kind of the kind of projects you could do a qualitative take, develop qualitative skills, and then be able to kind of do some analysis that feeds back into like presenting key findings. And I was really fortunate because Dr. Emily Hine in the nutrition department and her collaborator, Dr. Jonathan Merritt Nash, were working on a food insecurity study at CSBSJU. So They had done several, I think by the time I started having conversations with them, they'd already done two or three rounds of quantitative of survey data collection. Um, But they had this data and they had already identified some key insights and some key trends that they were seeing. Um, And Emily Hine was like very interested in the partnering to be able to use qualitative data to help figure out, okay, we know we see certain trends, right? So we know broadly that one third of students report food insecurity, which is consistent with the national average. So we know CSBSJU, if we look at the entire campus from that kind of big perspective, student food insecurity is about the same as other campuses which remains consistent despite it being a private school and rural, right? We could also see s- certain trends that relate to the way the food system and the meal plans are done at CSBSJU. So we see the most food secure groups being those first and second year Bennies, and the most food insecure groups being those first and second year Johnny's linked to the way that the, at the time, the default plan was the block plan. I should also note that our qualitative data is still, we're still kind of finalizing analysis. We collected data up until COVID forced us to be online and the era and the dining services pre-COVID and post-COVID are very different, right? So we opted not to continue interviewing this year because we understand that dining services has, has had to change significantly. So the, the, the data wouldn't be the same, right? We did about 50, in the 50s of uh, interviews. And when I say we, we actually, there's an amazing team of undergraduate researchers who've been working on this. Many of the interviews were done by students Um, who also were very helpful in the coding, helping develop a code book and doing some of the initial analysis. Professor Emily Hine is on sabbatical this semester, and she has worked with me on the qualitative stuff. She worked with Professor Jonathan Merritt Nash on the quantitative stuff, which they're still publishing, too. So it's kind of like two branches Um, Emily is the one who's on both sides and is also the one who's been working with a a number of the institutional stakeholders involved who are really, have been involved in conversations from the beginning because they really want to address this in the kind of best way that makes sense for everyone and that recognizes the like economic limitations, right? So Professor Emily Hying would be the one to talk to if you if you want to know more about the institutions. Although what that's going to look like, you know, next year post-covid, like or in the reality that covid shaping is is still uncertain. So,
1: so if I were to ask you a question about mm-hmm. what are the institutions fixing about their policy?
0: I know, well, I know we see a lot of different ways, especially, I was really struck, especially in the student interviews by the the ways that students are looking out for each other informally, either punching people in, especially using kind of like those first and second year bunnies who have access to kind of more resources are using them to like help and to bring other people into dining services. We see when people know that other people are are struggling. We see lots of sharing of food, sharing of punches. Some of our uh, amazing student um, researchers are RAs. And so it, it sounds, my understanding is that RAs and then the residence hall directors understand that there could be scarcity or someone you know, the first and second year Johnnies who have used up all their punches and it's only November. One of the things that used to be a challenge and I think has changed in this COVID time is during breaks. And I think that that actually has changed in a way that makes it more accessible. The other thing that I know is a major challenge that students reported was access to rides to grocery stores. And so prior to this year, I believe that there was discussion of a program to try and do some more ride shares. Um, we see informal ride shares, people offering to help bring their friends to inexpensive grocery sh- stores, but, um, and there is the link that used to go.
1: I don't know if it's still going in this kind of era of COVID. What you said earlier about the what it really looks like on the ground, you know, seeing someone walk into McGlynn's and being able to diagnose that as food insecure?
0: Oftentimes people don't see their own behavior as food insecure, right? They won't report food insecurity um, and they won't kind of, they, they won't talk about it, right? If you ask someone, oh, have you ever experienced food insecurity? They'll say no, but then, you know, maybe a half an hour later, they're talking about how you know, every week they're trying to make every punch into two meals, right? Like going to McGlynn's and getting a foot footlong um, and then being able to use that as two meals. People spoke a lot about the ways that they're really economizing and trying to stretch meals and plan to kind of get as far um, on those meal plans as possible. Like I was absolutely shocked when the kind of first interview I was in a student talked about donating plasma to like be able to have money and then they'd buy groceries with the the money from donating plasma and that came up in a number of interviews like that really as a faculty member it's something I never would have imagined right um and it just like, that's really hard. It's hard to hear and it's hard to think through. If that's the way that students are providing for themselves for, for, for food, um, which is, there's nothing against that, but just thinking of, like, how can we best support our students so that no one experiences the stress of food insecurity?
1: I actually really liked what you said right there about the, the definition of food insecurity. And I might ask you another question so you can say that definition again. So there are
0: lots of definitions. There's like the USDA definition. Um, Most of them stress, reliable access, sufficient quantity, and then like the ability to access nutritious food, right? So kind of grocery shopping, fresh produce, fresh fruit, like those can be on the kind of more expensive than the staples of like rice and pasta and ramen.
1: I think something that also really strikes me is that it's it's really hidden, that mm-hmm. a lot of people, that they, they see all the excess that's in Goretzky, and they say, how could anyone possibly be food insecure if they have access to this? Mm-hmm. And there's also this idea that even if your friends are food insecure, you can just punch them in.
0: Yeah, it, it is hidden, and it's also, I, like, I think people under, understand it at some point level and talk about it but maybe not in the terms of like food secure, food insecure um but it's also it's also something that that i think students maybe not don't even kind of recognize or sometimes you think of like oh i'm a college student so this is you know like what college students do or when i was a grad student we used to talk about like the grad student diet right like you think of it as like an economizing time in your life and yet it, everyone should have access, right? To, to food and sh- should have access without having to do the kind of invest a ton of time and, and concern in trying to gain access to reliable meals.
1: You mentioned that you wish that there were more education and more outreach towards students and I've good news for you. You are on a soapbox right now. You have a direct ear oh, into all the people who are listening to our podcast. What would you tell people how to help their friends, how to participate in these informal networks of helping other people?
0: I, I would say um, to keep the fact that that not everyone has reliable access. Not everyone has, you know, a, a mini fridge full of snacks. I would say the kind of the Benedictine values, like looking out for each other, being, not being afraid to talk about this, but doing so in a a kind of mindful, respectful way, kind of looking out for people who on your floor, maybe even people that you don't necessarily know. And, And for those kind of first and second year Johnnies, I think also, if you have a punch, that you can flex forward if you have those options. Like I am really impressed. I was really impressed by listening to the ways that students are helping each other. I would say kind of having that in mind is the kind of best place to start.
1: I really enjoy the Flex It Forward program and I really wish it were more advertised. I think we also have programs like the, we have a ride sharing program. We have enterprise cars sitting on the lot all the Mm. time. And that if someone needed it, they could. I think they're rentable for free. And there's oh, really? So many, there's so many resources that our college has. We have you know Minnesota Street Market down the street from CSB, yeah. which offers a offers a discount for students if anyone wants to come. And, anyway, I that sounds amazing. Yeah, it's a problem of too much. It's fantastic. So much food insecurity and food waste are the same problem. It's just a matter of yeah.
0: It's been mm-hmm. lovely chatting with you, Betsy. I hope
1: this was helpful.
0: Um, be in touch. Our two, the, two of the RAs
1: put some resources together too. Yep. And I very much appreciate you giving your time during this crunch week.
0: Oh, no problem. No problem. Okay. Yeah. I'll let you go. Thank uh, you so absolutely. much. Thank you very, very much. Bye. Tell, tell Rachel Broder I say hello.